Jondre, and welcome back to My Lifeline Rose. So in today's episode, I am going to talk about a book I recently finished reading, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, by Rennie Edo Lodge. I bought this book along with a few others to start my journey into actively being anti-racist, learning the history and learning the conversation techniques I need in order to express my anger productively and have those conversations that are actually well-meaning. We have heard over and over and over that it's not enough to just be not racist. We have to be anti-racist. Now I'm throwing around a lot of statements we have all heard before, but it doesn't mean they're not true. Like in my first episode, if you haven't listened to it, I also spoke about Black Lives Matter, and here I am speaking about it again because it is so relevant to all of us. Now, now a disclaimer before you listening to this podcast, I don't want to be the first point of reference that you come to for anti-racism at all. Uh, I, I don't have a white audience, so I know I'm not, but I'm going to be talking about a book by a black author, and I just want to say that there are so many more black activists out there who are experts in the field of anti-racism that should be given a voice higher up than any white person who is talking about anti-racism because this is the time for black people to stand up and speak because and we not just them to stand up and speak but we need to pass the mic to those activists um so i'm going to be talking about why i'm no longer talking to white people because i really enjoyed this book and i want you to read it but i also i would be even happier if you read it before you even talk to me um i'm going to be talking uh like, this is one book by a black author, and then you've also got How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kennedy, you've got uh, Natives by Akala, and so many more resources by black uh, authors and writers and artists and s- activists. On Even if you go to Black Lives Matter website, they have a web series right now uh, about activism. I think they've got about five episodes out, and I think those are the first point of reference that you need to go to to start your journey in an educated way about um anti-racism um and also to make sure you're supporting the black voices because right now high up in the high best-selling books there's one book called white fragility and i'm sure it has amazing talking points about uh, white fragility and why white people get so defensive about when they talk about racism and anti-race uh and anti-racism stuff except for the fact that this book was written by a white white author now the biggest issue i i saw this in an instagram post someone said oh i really enjoyed white fragility i i i think it's an excellent book and then the activist uh instagram commented underneath so saying that i have an issue with this comment because this is a white person who wrote this book who's profiting off black lives matter and that makes no sense to me like that white people are profiting off a movement that isn't for them. Uh, So that's why I just wanted to put this disclaimer in that make sure that where you're getting your education from, if you're taking active steps into learning more about Black Lives Matter and anti-racism, make sure you're getting it from uh, voices that are more valuable in this movement right now, from the experts. (laughs) But other than that, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I hope that I'm clear 
when I'm talking about everything that's in this book and what's so interesting about it and the importance of knowing our history and stuff. been approached and this is mind-boggling to me but I have been approached and told that the book that I'm reading is racist in itself you know do you get where they're coming from they're saying that the fact that this book is pointing out white people as an individual group it's that that is being racist and the whole and then I've also been approached by other people not saying that the book is racist but they're expressing this this sentiment that oh no you can't stop talking to white people we need you to listen to us and though i know for a fact i've listened to an interview by this author by rennie saying that she is she constantly gets that like white sympathizer who may have never even had this conversation about racism before they actually saw the title why why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And they're like, no, we need you to talk to us because we, we won't learn if you don't talk to us. Well, guess what? Black people have been talking to white people for years, years, for 400 years, black people have been trying to make their voice heard and recognized and for years. Oh, I can't even, like, continue my sentence just thinking about it. Um, but I guess Rennie's main response is, have you actually read the book? Because her intro to the book, she based this book off a blog post she uh, post published in, like, about 2014. And, and she actually says, I'm no longer engaging with white people on the topic of race. Not all white people, just the vast majority of who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. This is what this book is about. This book isn't about the fact that she's boycotting white people because that's not what she's doing. She's, boy she's boycotting the white people who are boycotting her and other black voices. So, so it, it's more about this, uh, and in her own words, she uses the words, this emotional disconnect white people seem to have towards anti-racism and racism and, and, and those conversations and and how exhausting it is to have those conversations now if you think if i think it's exhausting uh to have the conversation and see this rhetoric in a white in a whitewashed world that racism systemic racism no longer exists and that black people and other people of color suffering are being dismissed left right and center by people in our families in our communities and in the media and also by our governments if i think that's exhausting then what about the black community what about the other people of color how exhausting do you think it is for them to constantly listen to this rhetoric that seems to ignore their that does ignore their suffering um and that's why I think this title seems to start so much controversy. Uh, and it's for those people who have this disconnect, as well as also those people who are scared that black people are going to stop talking to them. But when you read this book, this book is talking to white people about black suffering in a way that hopefully appeals to your mind that some, for some reason, the emotional pleas of people at protest and in their own homes and on the news hasn't appealed to you um 
I was I went to I was part of a webinar uh, with uh, the Socialist Workers Worker Party uh, just a few days ago that I signed up for, uh, and it was about activism and young people and activism and and racism and class and and issues around there, and um, and one point that they brought up that I thought was actually quite like I was like wow you're right uh, was about this idea of education seems to be on everybody's words everybody who's like we need to the only way we can solve racism is to be educated to educate in our schools to change uh, and and educate ourselves and that kind of thing but if you actually think about it in the last month or so and i'm recording this in uh at the end of june so black lives matter has been has been going on for a few weeks now since joy uh, since the death of george floyd um is that education stems out of the struggle uh, that's been happening right now. So much education has stemmed out just because of these protests being high in the media right now. People are like realizing that they can't just be stuck in their bubble anymore uh, and, and more so than they ever did when they were at university or at high school or anything. Not only because our high school educations are, are uh, biased against, they, like half the time they ignore black history except for maybe some of the main points of uh martin luther king uh they kind of they kind of our history in our classrooms are whitewashed so one we need to yes improve the education and improve and increase the amount of black history in our classrooms both the good and the bad we need to learn more about the slavery and uh, more about those white figures that we hear more praise about than we hear uh than we hear criticism of because they deserve the criticism in our history. They deserve the good and the bad um, in our classrooms. So yes, education is important, but in, over the last month, these protests have been more educational than ever. There are using education as a form of anti-racism is important, but it's also a really passive way when people use it as an argument against these protests. It's a really passive um, uh, argument. And so, uh, so yeah, we can say education is important and it is vital uh, to this movement. But what are we do using that education for? It's like, it, 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 it's okay to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I've educated myself. I now know more about the Windbrush uh, uh, scandal. I now know uh, about the protests in the 80s uh, of people protesting anti-racism people protesting black people in their in their in their neighborhoods uh in the uk and that wasn't that long ago um but i digress uh what are we going to use with that education what are we going to use once that education's in place why wasn't the the mourning mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers of the black people who have been killed over the last 100 years 400 years enough to educate us that racism is real and that we need to do something and that we need to stand up as white people so I, that's why i have to say this book the title of this book is so controversial to people so controversial in the way that it shouldn't even be controversial Especially in a British society. This book is British-based. I do live in Britain. I know I sound American, but that's besides the point. This book's title is so controversial, but it's 
it's a good thing. It's starting conversations. That's why I'm having a conversation with myself about it so that you can listen to the conversations I want to have during this pandemic. But even in my own household, we are having these conversations about exactly why this book is actually so important or where this book is actually coming from. So actually one of the one of the more things that, one of the things that I took out of this book was from the white privilege chapter and and again this is imploring to us why white people need to take up the conversation not leave the movement but they need to take up the conversation and they need to be part of the movement of anti-racism actively take part because it is as much as our fight as it is black people's fight and other people of color uh, and that we can use our privilege to take up that conversation with other people who don't recognize that they're privileged as white. Um, and the reason why this is so important, this was noted in the 60s when Martin Luther King was uh, fighting for civil rights. A lot of people think that we live in a post-racial society, but I'm telling you, we do not. They always use this quote from, from Martin Luther King about his peace and his love and not wanting to fight. And, 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 be, and, and like they use quotes like that to argue against the methods Black Lives Matter have right now. Uh, against, they, they don't, people, a lot of white people are like, oh, these protests are so uncalled for they're so violent and they're they're antagonizing and they're not fighting them for the real thing and that or and some of these people also don't believe that structural racism exists they do believe that we live in a in a post-racial society which we do not i feel like the one thing that they forget and rennie and rennie highlights this to us in her book that martin luther king when he was fighting for civil rights he was fighting his his way of protesting was seen as violent. He wasn't violent, but he was seen as a violent person. Everything that he did was not peaceful. Like, they, in context, everything that he did in the 60s were a complete violation. The way, the way a black person would go and sit in a white area of a restaurant in the 60s when they were segregated was the same as, 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 a, as, violence that was seen as violence and therefore they used violence to fight against those people who were doing those things um so like for me one of like people always use his quotes about love and peace against these protests and then my first go-to quote to counteract those arguments was riots are the voice of the unheard and to me this was enough like if i had any if i had any doubt in my mind that everything the protests that are going on and the riots that have gone on were were negative if i had any doubt that those things were actually that weren't they weren't positive uh that that quote changed that because the reason why we're out there protesting and the reason why we're out there um uh rioting and we're rioting as a multicultural like we're rioting for black lives matter in a multicultural sense there's white latino uh other people of color chinese asian um and black people all over the world in all different countries going together and putting up this global resistance against racism in a multicultural way for black lives um that it's just showing that there is a voice being unheard and people seem to not not be taking this message from these protesters they seem to choose to ignore that with passive quotes um so Here's a quote in Rennie's book that, to me, builds upon this idea of white silence is violence. 
So Martin Luther King said in his letter from Birmingham jail, he says, and I quote, first, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the black man's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension or to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. Who the paternalistically who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives in the myth who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the black man to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than the absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Now, if you feel like you need to read this more, I've, I, I, sh I shared this in a blog post on my blog. I, I've, and in that blog post, there was also a link towards where you can access this letter for free. And he has some, and he's, I, I just found this message so powerful because it, 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 it's so relevant to what's happening right now of, um, it, anti-racism is, racism is more about just, is more than just saying I'm not racist. It's about being actively anti-racist, which is like the first thing I said in this podcast. That's why I it riles me up when people get upset and they say, why are you using the race card when black people try to talk to them? And this is why black people are scared to talking to white people because they're going to be blamed for using the race card. Um, because by just being quiet about racism, by not acknowledging that it, it was there that it is there and that it will still be there in years to come is a f it, 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 it's so condescending and and and, 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 and it's ignoring the real problem which i feel like happens a lot in british society on the back of this book it even says a wake-up call to a nation in denial and, and 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 white people all over the world are in denial and that's why people are so it's like you can be in denial or you can be overtly racist and half and most of the time they go hand in hand and that's why this book is so important and this is why this book is titled the way it is and i'm sorry if i'm being repetitive but it's just it's so it's so important so yeah, no, I think this book, I recommend this book because I think it is so important towards our journeys into being completely anti-racist out of many others. Like there's other books with similar topics that will explain histories in a slightly different way. It will tell us a bit more about how racism takes form in our workplaces, in our everyday lives. And I, and I think it's important that we know that. I, obviously, we don't want to overload our brain and then like be so informed that we, that, that, that we don't know what to do with that information but we need that information in the first place um and, and so i really do think that this book has the basics of covering the histories in the system and 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 where racism intersects with other things and 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 why we should be reading books like this and and talking to our to our families and communities about racism and anti-racism so i'm gonna give a summary about each of the chapters that I read this is for me and for you uh, because in order to absorb everything that I've read 
I wrote down some notes and now I'm going to talk to myself about it <laughs> and, and get and create this like I'm a really truly absorbing the information that I've taken in from this book because I think it's, the information in this book is so valuable. Um, so yeah, uh, um, so I'm going to start off with the fact with the first chapter, which is about the histories. And this covers histories right from uh, the beginning of col colonialism uh, to to the abolishment of slavery to uh, the early 1900s with the World War. So like British, tr the British people traded in African slaves in the 1500s for about 270 years before, um, before uh, slavery was abolished or the Slavery Act was put in place. And and slave owners when when uh slavery was being abolished and you've probably heard this before they were being paid reparations for their loss in capital because that's what black people were to them it was the capital and you know the biggest slave traders around the uk were in liverpool and anywhere with a seaport basically um and so in order for the government to be like okay we're going to end slavery, but how are we going to appease those people who own slaves? So instead of paying the slaves in order for them to have a better life uh, after escaping uh, their uh, entrapment, they, they, paid, they paid the slave owners. And to this day, right up till 2015, those repayments were still being made, being paid by our taxes. S families of slave owners generation after generation have been being paid since the 1800s till now and to me that is mind-boggling it's just crazy but i've seen this around in a different way but when black people were slaves they were quasi an quasi animal they were seen as animals and and this attitude that black people weren't animals did not change overnight and for some people still hasn't changed overnight and so and and there wasn't enough put in place to support black people after leaving slave uh, slavery which is leads us to our to the our more current history of the 60s when civil rights was being fought so that and where black people were fighting to be treated as human humans more now with colonialism the british went into these countries jamaica and india and africa and south africa and uh, and Australia, and they basically convinced the the people in 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 those countries that England was the great motherland, that it had everything they ever needed, that they were now citizens under that queen and the ruler, and um, and that they had that they should have so much respect for those countries, and so and and generations grow up thinking, oh my gosh, the motherland sounds beautiful, and it's my home, and so. During the World Wars, England brought over enlisted people from Jamaica and from India and probably from other colonial countries to help in the war efforts. But when they came over, they were treated less than than the white British soldiers. They obviously they were given the worst jobs in in the soldiers. And whenever the wars were over, their efforts were not recognized at all. Like you think about any of the commemorations of um, of of the World Wars you don't get to recognize the black people and other people of color who were involved in those situations as well as the setting up of the nhs because it was black women from jamaica who really helped set up the nhs and build it to what it is now um 
and again happened in the Windrush scandal where they brought about 500 people from Jamaica over and then you've got people saying send them back home gen like two generations after where these children have been born in Britain and they known as the homeland and so you come to a place where you think is the motherland your homeland and then get told no you're just a foreigner you're just an immigrant you don't belong here but it wasn't even their choice to come over and it wasn't their choice for their for for the England to be their motherland um and so I'm ranting about this because it, it just, it's so, it's ironic, it's unfair, it's, uh, and it, it, it's completely, it's just wrong. Um, <laughs> that's all I have to say, it's just wrong. Um, it, the same happened with the Irish during the World Wars, where the Irish weren't given the recognition that they deserved during the wars and which is why they rebelled so hard against their English ruling in in Ireland and now you've got Northern Ireland in Ireland uh, and so and so it's important to recognize that history is not actually that long ago the war was only a hundred years ago and and Windrush was only about 60 years ago and then you've got the 80s and this is where people really started kicking up uh starting to do those black lives matter marches not under the name of black lives matter but they were they were fighting against the racism that they were experiencing because you've got this incident of uh lawrence who was killed uh by the police and no i think it, uh, and there was no justice found and there was a few arson attacks as well um where a, f a family was burned burned down but people ruled that it wasn't a racist arson arson attack and then in 2012, justice was brought and justice was seen in court and those families were given apologies. At least I hope they were. So, and then that brings us to the current time. This book finit, like, was published around 2016 and there you've got Brexit, the EU. The, after Brexit was voted for, you've got reports that hate crime increased. Uh, and people were like, this racism popped out of nowhere. What's happening? But no, you're looking at 400 years, 500 years of, of slavery, of paying slavery families back, of bringing people over from colonized countries and treating them less than even though you told them that they would get better here. Um, uh, and so this racism has been embedded in British culture for an history for so long that no the hate crimes that increased after brexit was voted for did not just pop out of nowhere it is embedded in our culture okay so now we move on to chapter two which is all about the system and the idea of structural racism which exists Randy touches on different aspects of how racism uh, takes place in structural in structural systems like such as schools and workplaces and even in football and it, and she actually acknowledges that her, she herself didn't believe in structural racism she was suspicious of this idea of raising more representation of black people in workplaces because she didn't see the difference between her and her white classmates. She was always, her mom had always told her that she must work twice as hard. And black people get this message all the time. Work twice as hard compared to your, to your white counterparts because then you'll be seen as 
you will be seen more as equals then but she didn't understand this and she was like no i want to compete fairly with my white classmates for these jobs and now journalism was hard to get into because that's that that's the career that she wanted to go into um uh, and internships were hard to come by but her mom sent her the divert a diversity scheme application and while she was resistant she decided okay i will apply for this and through that process of going into workplaces to interview for internships she realized why it was so important because the representation of black and minority groups in those workplaces were mainly found in the cleaning staff and in the catering staff rather than the actual journalist side of the there was barely any black writers up in the higher places in the office of journalists office and this is the same for across so many other um uh um companies and businesses and workplaces um and so and so she explores this idea uh in i don't know what year it was but she talks about how in america they implemented this uh, high, this interview process of in making sure that they reach a quota of black people and minority people in their interview process. No, they didn't have to hire those people, but they had to have that positive discrimination that allows at least a, like a certain percentage of black people into the into the interview process in order for it to be more fair. Uh, but in the UK, when this was suggested to implement in businesses and in football companies, they were in a, they were so against this across the country. People raised their voices saying, "No, we shouldn't. I don't. We don't want this. Uh, we're scared that this is this this positive discrimination is uh, all about ticking check boxes. That uh, uh, that that by implementing this tokenism is going to take place. That we're only hiring people." to make sure we reach the diversity quota and not based on their merit and their achievements. But this in itself reveals what hiring people, like the people who hire people think talent looks like, the kind of person they think talent resides in, as all the people in these workplaces are mainly white. And so you also come to this next argument point that they say they always compare their workplaces to the population of the whole country. And they're like, well, the black, black and minority people are in the minority and the majority is white people. So when we have like 99% white people in our company and 1% black and minority, it makes sense because that's what our population is. Um, but in her book, and I'm, I'm going to quote this because this is the comparing your workplace to the population is true to tokenism obsession with the bodies in the room rather than recruiting the right people who will work in the interest of the marginalized is what tokenism uh, is how tokenism is really taking place because they're only looking at okay who do they have in the room yeah they have more white people than black people and therefore they're not recognizing how beneficial uh, black and minority people in their workplaces are in to serve the interests of the marginalized because our society has marginalized people all over the world and and black and there's many talented black people who deserve the same opportunities as white people uh, and so putting that extra step in a diversity scheme isn't making it unfair because it was already unfair the percentage of white people to black people 
is already unfair. And so if you're, and so it's crazy to think that just by putting those steps in, suddenly it's switched around. But no, the percentages haven't changed. Wait until it's 70% black and 30% white, and then talk to us if the system has become unfair. But I'm telling you now, when are we ever going to reach that point in a society that we live in? So, yeah, chapter three was really interesting about the system, and she touches on other things, like she talks about education um, and such. So, another reason to read this book. So, the next chapter is all about white privilege. So, now, I'm only going to touch a little bit about this chapter, because I already earlier mentioned that she quoted MLK, and that beautiful, well, not beautiful, that powerful uh, segment from his letter to Birmingham jail, uh, about how white silence and how a white man thinks that they can choose how Black Lives Matter is run, how it should be talked about, how direct action isn't the answer, and how actually the reason why civil rights has taken took so long to get to where it was and why black lives are still struggling to matter now is because of this uh, wanting of a peace with the absence of the negative, like ignoring the negative part and having a negative peace rather than a peace with justice, um, a positive peace. So white, the white privilege chapter, she touches on her experiences as when she was a child, all the characters she would see on TV were good people were white, bad people were black or minorities or gay or something like that. And so the default became white. White was always the neutral and then blackness and any other person of color was the other. That, and, that, and that's the way media has been presented to us. And yes, media has increased with black presence in the media, but the, the neutral stayed the same. Um, uh, and, and, and it comes to this point, it's like she explains, what is white privilege? And white privilege is hard to explain in just one way, but this one sentence that she uses, white privilege, is the absence of negative consequences of racism. And so, and, and to me, this, this embraces the idea that white privilege doesn't mean that as a white person, uh, you, your life is so much more better, because you're still going to face those other discriminations of uh, job loss and mental health issues and um and family pain and all those kind of things but that isn't because you're white the discrimination you might face in the future growing up and in your family isn't anything to do with your race or the history of oppression because you're not being oppressed because you're white in fact you're not even being recognized as white you're being recognized as an individual whereas the black community have been oppressed simply because it's their skin color simply because they're black and and it's always like this black on black violence we never saw we never talk about this white on white violence and in the newspapers it's like we mention we talk we don't really highlight the this white man did this unless it was something to do with race and to highlight the race but it's always the black man this indian man the the muslim uh man uh and i'm, I'm using man a lot but it also happens with women um and and so black and other minority groups have always been pointed out as the other and always made to feel strange and weird and her experience growing up as a black child she almost learned to hate herself for her, something that she can't change whereas and so and so and that's what 
when this white privilege embodies is that no i'm not saying that you're better off but you are better off because of your skin color like that is the, the that is one place where you are better off than someone who is black or mixed raced um and even there there's even a divide in 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 the darkness of someone who is black because someone who's a really really dark black gets often more discriminated than someone who is a lighter skin tone of black and mixed race and and this divide is seen in south africa during the apartheid because uh, and my mom she grew up during apartheid south africa and she was always classed and I use this term because this is literally what's on her passport as colored. Like we recognize now better language is mixed race, but her there was basically almost three, four classes in South Africa where you've got the white as the top and then you've got the middle, which is the colored community, which is the wrong word to use, but you've got Asian, then you've got Indian, and then you've got uh, and then you've just got unknown mixed race. And then you've got the black community. So the people in the middle were also made to fear people in the black community uh and black people almost were trained almost interfering themselves as well and and you and, and this and this is perpetuated in the media and it's perpetuated in our families and by our governments all the time that there is a difference between black and white people and that is why a race card is actually so important a white privilege in fact was a term that was coined by a white academic called Du Bois, D-U-B-O-I-S. Um, and so, and it's really important to recognize that, like we always come to this point where it's like, check your privilege. But we've also come past that point where checking your privilege isn't the only thing that you need to do in this fight for racism, but it is one place to start. I just wanted to hop in and before I move on to the next chapter that I've been seeing this uh, idea of comparing white white girls a movie where two black men disguise themselves as white women comparing to other TV shows that have implemented blackface into their comedy like uh, I think Little Britain um, and why and people are getting upset saying if this is racist then how is white girls not also racist well I'm going to tell you why there is a difference and why people are sensitive around that issue is because white face putting someone putting on a white face has never been centered on oppression uh, the the use of a white face has never been um perpetuating this i uh, the oppression of white people because white people haven't been uh, haven't been oppressed because they're white whereas black people in in the old like way back when uh blackface was used because as a way to negatively portray black people and because they wouldn't put a black person on their tv so they were purposely making white people put blackface on so that they didn't have to use black actors and then they were portraying black people as so negative that it affected uh, the community for years and years and years like it's media has a strong influence on people around the world which is why a blackface is different from a white face it's recognizing that that system of oppression that black people have been put in and what it perpetuates uh and and that's why people i wouldn't call people who are upset like people who are getting upset that people want to change coco pops or uh different uh companies that have that have used to use their advertising as a racist advertising um rather uh, and so they want to change their symbols the reason why those symbols should change is because they have perpetuated they have perpetuated oppression for far too long and 
and I don't think people are being overly sensitive about that. And, and I think it actually is really important to recognize that. We're not erasing a history. We're not re- erasing um, uh, entertainment. Uh, we're recognizing the issues of what those inter- that entertainment perpetuates. So now I'm going to talk about chapter four, which is a fear of a black planet, which is a really interesting uh, uh, chapter of the book because it, it explains some of the what feeds into a racist rhetoric and that some people have this genuine fear that white people are going to be breathed out of existence. So she traces back this idea to the six to six to the sixties in sixty eight, a conservative politician, Enoch Powell, um, uh, did a speech which was at the height of a really racist speech, uh, which was accepted at the time and now would not be accepted at all. And and, and, he's, and, and he plays into and makes people fear immigrants coming into this country, as well as the black people who have been living here for years that they brought over on the Windrush scandal and during the war. And basically... People turn around and go, oh, no, we want these people to go home. We don't want white people to be breeded out of existence. We don't want them to take our jobs and all of that kind of stuff. And this rhetoric still exists. And maybe not a majority of white people, but in the minority of the extreme racist white people or people who are generally scared. We see this in a more recent party called the UKIP, who were the frontiers of Brexit, uh, led by Nigel Farage. And she actually interviewed Nigel Farage. And you can read the whole interview in this part of the book um and you can see where he's like his how he genuinely believes in this in this that this world is going to be breeded like white people are going to be breeded out of existence um and there's so many issues with this rhetoric it's interesting to explain the opposite side of like we're we're talking about anti-racism all the time but now interesting looking at where racist ideology is coming from and it's also really mad to think that okay why do you celebrate colonial so much because colonialism so much because basically that is one of the places where multiculturalism started you're the one who invaded the countries of people of different color and black people and taking them from their supposedly home co- homeland and bringing them over and now they've been in uh, in the uk and in america for years and years and now and born there and and that is the uk and america is their home you can't just look at a black person and say go back home because they're in their home country most of the time and and it's really detrimental to think, oh, we can just send them back home. What home? You took it away from them. You destroyed it for them. And now they are at home. Um, so, so to be proud of this history of colonialism and being powerful over the world does not coincide with this genuine fear of, uh, of, of a black planet. And, and, and how detrimental this rhetoric is in the sense that People pit so much hate on immigrants and, and immigrants are, are discriminated on in the workplaces and in their everyday life, in the neighborhoods they live in and in schools and children are like told to go back home and they don't even know why because they know that they are at home. So it, it's hard to be displaced all the time and this is what a fear of a black planet perpetuates so i would also this chapter is quite interesting and you can read through uh, on the other touch points that she talks about um 
So now we're coming on to the last two chapters, and these cover a lot about intersectionality. So chapter five is all about feminism and racism. Uh, as a woman, Rennie uh, identifies as a feminist, though she struggles with this identity. And as she was building up her feminist identity and attending feminist uh, groups and safe spaces for women, she started to notice that there was always this divide between white and black women in these feminist groups. Uh, oftentimes she would be the only uh, black woman in those groups and and, and therefore she had, she started to see the importance of finding uh, safe spaces specifically for black women as well as attending those white spaces because in throughout history feminism and racism have been fought around the same times for the same reasons fighting for hum- uh, the right to vote and fighting for the right to be seen equal as men and as white men um and so and and both have been super controversial throughout history uh and so in order for feminism to be almost more palatable in an argument with white men they tried to set white feminists tried to separate it as much as possible from racism and that they were two separate issues and they can't be dealt together and for too long color blindness has been present in the conversation about in feminism whenever a race car whenever the race card and i say that in like quotation marks has been brought up uh and 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 this and, and, and this poses a real problem because it's ignoring the intersectionality. It, it ignores the differences in the way people experience discrimination because w- I, as a queer person, will experience a discrimination for being queer in a different way than someone who's a person of color who experiences discrimination for being queer is different from as a person in a really strict religious family uh, and uh, experiences discrimination for being queer as well as someone who doesn't have a family who experiences discrimination so that there there is just there's so many ways and all those forms of discrimination are are that are experienced the feelings that come from those and the way they experience are all really valid and need to be recognized and also need to be fought against um and, and and so in this book she includes uh she includes from the late 18, 1800s there was a a black woman who was a black abolitionist and a woman's right activist who addressed a woman at a woman's right convention in Ohio, in Ohio oh this was in 1851 i'm just reading it in the book now um and she covers she talks about being a black woman in in america uh so and and so what does she say she says i think that the south and the woman of the north all talking about rights and white men will be in a fix pretty soon but what's this here talking about that man over there says that woman needs to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me the best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? And then they talk about this thing in the head. And what does, what's it called? Intellect. That's it, honey. What's, got that, what's that got to do with women's rights and black, and, and black people's rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint and yours holds a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have a little bit, a little half measure full? 
And so here she's talking about uh, now this is in 1850s, but this carried on right into the six into the uh, 1960s, and it's carried on now. How how black people have been dismissed in the fight for human rights. Um, and it also shows how black women have been at the head uh, of so many movements to fight the oppressors. They've been the head of black rights movement. They've been the head of the LGBT rights fight. And they've been at the head of women's rights. They were even the head of the building up the NHS. And they have always been there in the background. And yet they're also the ones who are ignored the most and oppressed the most. So yeah, I found this piece speech really powerful. Uh, Lord Audrey Lord also uh, writes about "Ain't I a Woman?" because because there is there th this needs to be recognized, uh, and black women's rights needs to be addressed from a racial point of view and a feminist point of view because because intersectionality is so important. Now, the next chapter is all about class and racism, and this gets me so riled up because of my left-leaning way. It just, oh, I, class and capitalism just gets on my nerves so much, and it bothers me because of how much racism is entrenched in, in, uh, within capitalism. So I'm going to say it again. Racism is entrenched in capitalism. A majority of black and minority people in communities are considered working class. They, they, they fall into the working class identification. As, and, and now they're working class along with their white working class people. And yet throughout history, we've got this, uh, we've got this thing where uh, the upper class, who are usually white and rich and the minority, have basically pit the working class against each other so now you've got the white working class blaming the black working class for coming in and stealing their jobs uh, and and ruining the economy when really that isn't the the issue that's deep because the working class both black and white have a common uh, enemy of the upper class the upper class are at the head of all of this oppression that is taking place but racism and I, I, I recently um, attended a, a webinar by the Socialist Worker Party, and it was for young people, and it was all about race and class. And in there, they actually highlighted how racism isn't actually for the benefit of white people, the majority of white people. It's at the benefit for the, the minority of white people in the upper class ranks. Whereas people who are, but whereas the working class people actually would benefit so much more from the diversity that black and minority groups bring in to the working class and how to get, if they were, if they were able to work together, how they could almost form this revolution. Uh, uh, against uh, the upper class. Um, other people will argue that black faces up in higher places is the best way to tackle racism, but really no, because they aren't helping the communities who are in, uh, who are in the most in need of help in those poor neighborhoods where black people are being disadvantaged uh, majority and being ignored. Um, and, 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 and this brings us back to uh to this basic idea of capitalism that it's the exploitation of the many to benefit the few that the ex exploit exploitation oh i can't even say the word exploitation of the many 
So you've got the exploitation of the working class community, including black workers and white workers, to benefit the few, the small minority of rich, powerful, white middle class, uh, not middle class, what am I saying? White uh, upper class men. Um, and, and you even have Karl Marx, the father of communism who says that race is the child of racism not the father this concept of race like we talk we have to talk about race because it's important but the only reason why race became an issue in the first place was so that they could play our skin colors against each other instead of fighting the the bourgeoisie basically and and it was invented to allow capitalism to thrive and that's why class and race is so entrenched and and needs to be addressed together a lot of the times you you hear this from angela davis who is really strong on this idea and also has really strong opinions about yeah we had we had a, a black president in 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 term for two terms in america uh we have black chiefs and and uh, in higher up places but this isn't making a difference because now they've luckily reached a point where they are where they can be slightly more comfortable in their place but if they tried to step out of those bounds their whole lives could be ruined just because they pulled the race card or something like that so no being up in higher places doesn't benefit the people in uh, black people around the world because that is playing into a system of capitalism and again plays into this uh into systemic racism um and she also talks about gentrification and changing neighborhoods and demographics and how uh addressing that divide between the black working class and the white middle class isn't is being ignored and isn't being recognized as something that's important around the uk so I also related to this chapter a lot because because I don't know why I just get really riled up by classism and and such. So now we come to the end of this book and I hope my summary has been clear and hasn't been too long-winded and that everything that I've said has been interesting because I'm telling you it's probably it, it makes more sense when you read it but also when you go read books that cover similar topics. And we come to the conclusion of this book uh, her last chapter is, ba- is about uh, there's no justice, just us. Uh, and, and she basically says, like, you don't have to be the leader of a global movement or a household name. It can be as small scale as chipping away at the warped power relations in your workplace. It can be passing on knowledge and your skills to those who wouldn't access them otherwise. It can be creative. It can be informal. It can be your job. It doesn't matter what it is as long as you're doing something. And this is, again... I'm reiterating this point over and over why this book was written and why it's so important. And so it's like, oh, this book is so controversial in its title. Yes, because we're having conversations about it, conversations that we need to have and recognize where why we get sensitive over issues where uh, where where blackness is involved, why there uh, and whiteness is involved uh, and how there's a difference between the community that has been oppressed for over 400 years and a community who has will and never will be oppressed uh because of being white and why these conversations are so important so i just want to finish up and say thank you so much for listening to this podcast it has been bumpy along the way i am a brand new podcaster but i hope you enjoyed (laughs) 
once again, I want to say thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with your friends and family via word of mouth or on social media, as that is the best way to spread podcasting love. Uh, I am a brand new podcaster on the scene, and I hope my rambling hasn't been too annoying. But if you have any criticisms, constructive criticisms, please let me know. You can also check out more of my work on my blog, My Lifeline Rose, and on my Instagram, My Life at My Lifeline Rose as well, uh, and on my Twitter, where I will post updates on when I post new podcasts and new articles and new poems, and find anything that I have said out loud, written down. So once again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for listening to me ramble to the world and ramble to myself. This podcast has been brought to you by Jean-Dre. Remember kids, white silence leads to white violence.